This is A's Cast Live, your comprehensive look at the Oakland Athletics. Drive to deep center field, going back Hernandez at the track, right to the wall, gone! Elvis Andrews! And 29 other MLB clubs. High drive, deep left field, Guerrero lifts one to left field and gone. Oh, Tani, that was a moonshot out there in the right center. Alonzo defends his title, the 2021 Derby champion. Join us as we take you inside the baseball universe from OPS Plus to juiced balls to game-changing moments. We have you covered. Spend your afternoon with us next from the town, only on A's Cast Live. Here's Chris Townsend. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to A's Cast Live. We got a great show for you leading into the athletics against the Guardians. I just realized today's Thursday. That off day has thrown me off. So we got a four-game set against the Guardians. True. Then there's another off day on Monday before we take on the Sox. Before that. Horrific Sunday Peacock game at like five in the morning. We got to play. Uh, yeah, it's really early. What is it? Seven thirty-five pregame. Start? Oh my god! Like I was looking at that, going, "Really, folks? I love my job and I love working, but is there any reason that I should be on at seven thirty-five in the morning for a major league? This is not morning radio. Like we're not doing the morning zoo here on A's Guys Live. That's early." Yeah, 7.30. I mean, I've done morning radio on KMBR and 95.7 The Game over we, the years. We both have done it. It's, it's, it's horrible. What the hell am I? Sunday morning at 7.35? Are you kidding me? Like, I don't know why I'm sorry the show like this, but why would Peacock? Why? I'm going to switch my mic. It's very early, I will say that. And I'm not used to a 7.35 pregame or an 8.35 first pitch, although – a few weeks ago, the Pirates played on that Peacock game that early, but that's that's easy for them on the East Coast. That's normal time. Well, well, that that that's my question. Why would they have West Coast teams playing the Peacock game if it's early in the morning? I mean, it may it makes no eight thirty five. That's twelve thirty five East Coast times. They should have it. Should be all East Coast teams. That you're trying to tell me there's not. East Coast teams playing each other on Sunday? It's 11.35 East Coast. 11.35. Like, 11, fine. 11.35. Like, why would you put West Coast teams and you're taking their fan bases and telling them, get up. Hey. I know you got to go to church, uh, <laughs> but you got to get up 8.30, 8.35 in the morning for first. Ah, it's ridiculous. Can, can you imagine from, from Hawaii? That's 5.35 in the morning, Hawaii. Fact. What if I'm on vacation in Hawaii? And I want to watch the A's play the Guardians. I'm sitting in Maui, and I'm looking for my A's, and I'm like, I got to get up at five. what time? Uh, first pitch will be 5.35 Hawaiian because they're three hours behind so us. stupid. <laughs> Howard Bryant, longtime columnist. I mean, he's worked for ESPN. He's worked for – he worked here in the Bay Area for years. Yeah, covered the A's, yep. He is going to join us coming up here at 1.30 as he has a new Ricky Henderson book. Can you turn up my headphones? Uh, yeah. That will be at 1.30. At 2 o'clock, he's one of the greatest pitchers of all time. You can make a case. I don't care. You Mariano Rivera honks. I think we have to do that again today, maybe. You could make a case. Raleigh Fingers is the greatest reliever of all time. The Hall of Famer is going to join us at 2 o'clock. We taped this last Saturday when we were honoring the 1972 team. 
I was very honored to be able to do the MC duties as we were having a special season ticket holder, I guess, Q&A with the, with, the, with the World Series champs, and it was great to be a part of it, and I got to sit down with Raleigh Fingers. That will be at 2 o'clock. And then one of the great broadcasters in our game swung on and belted. He's got uh, all kinds of great home run calls. Tom Hamilton of the Guardians also – Last time I checked, he was still doing Big Ten Network stuff. Is he, is he still doing Big Ten? Uh, let me check. Calling games on Big Ten Wet Network, which was the original network in college sports. And let me tell you something. Big Ten schools have made a lot of money off the Big Ten Network. That means every school, you could be a doggone fleas. You could be, no offense, Illinois, in Champaign, Illinois, and your football team hasn't been good since forever and you still get that big big paycheck. Indiana, yeah, I'm looking at you. You still get that big check. Each, each, at one point. They when were good a couple years ago. At, at like, well, the, remember hoops, everything equates to this. But at one point when they first started out, it was fascinating. Every Big Ten team got like a check for like $40 million. Here you go. That was at the beginning. I mean, who knows what they're getting now each year. Like the SEC network. What they're getting, what Texas makes off their own network. I mean, these college teams print money like you wouldn't believe how much money. I mean, Ohio State, what they make off their athletic department dwarfs professional sports. It's crazy. It's at crazy. Just playing crazy. It's as funny, Bill Keen once said. It's funny you mention that because it says on here Hamilton calls college basketball games and parentheses, usually Ohio State games for the Big Ten network. Uh, Gotta ask if he's still doing that. And I want to, because it's, I'm telling you, having been in Big Ten country and knowing how, I mean, people, it's not like the Pac 12. No offense to David Feldman, our good friend Roxy Bernstein, and everybody else at the Pac 12 network. Nobody cares about what's going on at the Pac 12 network. In the Midwest, they all watch it, they love it. You know, college sports in the Midwest and the Southeast is a whole different ballgame. But what are we talking today? We're talking Howard Bryant at 1.30, Raleigh Fingers at 2 o'clock, Tom Hamilton at 2.30. I've got to get this off my chest because, yes, I was just at the gym, and I know, so at, 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 our, at our club, the San Jose Swim and Racket Club, basically I'm like the youngest guy. Everybody there is – Mark Can, his parents are still members there. I'm like the youngest guy, except when the kids are there to swim. For the people who work out, I'm like by far the youngest guy. That's uh, I don't know if I want. It's to, very old school. I was I don't know if I want to brag about that or it's not. It's very no. old school. Yeah, it's very old, and it looks it. Um, <laughs> I always know when I'm the last one to be at this one television because we can change the TVs because I'm the only one that puts MLB Network on. So you know, like I'll work out after the game. Like last night after post game, I went and worked out. So when I arrived there early, earlier today, when I know it hasn't been changed to soap operas, because no, normally it's on soap operas because of the um, the older ladies who work out in the morning before me, there's jazzercise going on. They got people, they got pool aerobics going on. Like I said, I'm by far the youngest guy. Uh, when I know the ML, when MLB Network is still on, I was the last one to touch that television. So who was on the south side of Chicago today, Commander? 
I should know. Not this. just the White Sox, of course, they would be there. Uh, Taking on a team, uh, they got a. They still have a lead in their division. They're pretty popular. Well, the Yankees. Their lead is only a game and a half. Oh, not the Yankees. Game and a half. Uh, yeah, they got some good players. Pretty big market. They travel real well. I don't know why I'm blanking on this. The Los Angeles Dodgers, oh, Dodgers. you may have heard of them. Yeah, they're pretty good. I keep forgetting they're playing an interleague series right now. So they're taking on the White Sox on the south side. Did you know that the Dodgers, because it had to have been, so I can't, I can't hear the volume. The closed captioning's on, but I can't hear the volume. So I'm watching this game. And um, – this day in Dodger history came up, and I don't know, something happened in Brooklyn on this day way back when, but did you know that the Dodgers, this is what's great about the history of our game, is everything has just changed over the years, and the history is so long. Did you know they used to be called the Trolley Dodgers? I never knew that. Because of the trolley in Brooklyn? Yeah, I never knew that. No clue. And I'm like, I'm you know, I'm on the pre-court, and I'm like watching this, and I'm like, that's interesting. You know, you think about their history, Brooklyn training in Vero Beach in Florida, making the move out in 58 with the Giants out west, and everything that's changed in Los Angeles. You know, the second largest city in the country. You're, I mean, you're talking about a premier market. For us in the radio and streaming business, L.A.'s king. They have the most cars in the United States of America. That's why you, you can talk about being big in New York, but really, in our industry, the biggest is Los Angeles because there's more cars and more radios now. Things have changed, obviously, because everybody, like what we're doing, streaming and podcasts and downloading and all that. But, um, yeah, watching the Dodger game today, they were the trolley Dodgers. Are they that game going on right now, or are they playing This game's going on as we speak. Wow. Um, I never knew that about the trolley Dodgers. That's interesting. Uh, when you told me you had something for me, I thought, oh, boy, here we go. Some stat that I like that you found, that you saw, how you're going to shoot holes in it. or Oh, I, I mean, I, I've been shooting holes in all your stats, and you have no defense. And you know what the sad thing is? I'm not a math guy. I'm really not an analytics guy. I follow it, but they're so easy to pick apart now because all the, all the guys who argue are friends like on MLB Now, all they argue with their analytics is outlier players. Well, look, Manny Machado. Well, the majority of guys aren't Manny Machado. By the way, guess who had an RBI yesterday and the ball was a bloop? Not Manny Machado? Big Murph. Yes, Big Murph can't hit his weight, and all you hear about is how hard he hits the ball, but he's just unlucky. Hey, little blooper to center with runners on. He didn't strike out. He actually made contact, put the ball in play. What happened? Run scored. A run scored. Hit them where they ain't. I love using Rod Carew right now because over the weekend I heard Raleigh Fingers and Daryl Knoll say Rod Carew was the worst guy. Was Rod Carew – did Rod, Rod Carew have a good career? Um, I, I believe he's in the pro, in the pro Professional Baseball Hall of Fame. He's not in the Pro Football Hall of Fame if that was where you're going. No, no, he's in the Baseball Hall of Fame. Yes. Uh, let's see, he had a 81.2 war. That's pretty good. Wait, wait a minute. Rod Carew is not going to go down as a guy who hit the ball – Harder than everybody else in his generation. 92 home runs, career. But just hard hit rate, barrel percentage. I guess his barrel percentage would be very good. 
Like he doesn't go back that far. But it, it, his metrics wouldn't be of today. We're talking about how hard Aaron Judge and John Carlo and Manny, how hard they hit the ball. Uh, how's his? How does he have such a high WAR if he didn't hit the ball as hard as other guys? Because uh, he got on base other ways and just hitting, trying to hit a home runs and hit the ball hard. Let's see. One year he led the, two different years. He led the league in triples. Um, he had, it looks like every year he had about 30, 25 to thirty doubles. He never really hit a lot of home runs. The most home runs he ever hit in his career in a season was, wait for it, 14. How does he have such a high war? How? How's that po- How does a guy who just hit the ball in play where, they, where the defenders weren't, kind of what the game's all about, how does he have such a high war? And I got a bunch of guys who supposedly hit the ball hard, and their war is not going to be what his is. Do I need to bring up Wade Boggs? Do I got to bring up Tony Gwynn? How do these guys... How do they hit the ball all over the yard where the defense isn't and collect such a analytic as war? It's so high versus I can find a ton of guys. Oh, you know who hits the ball hard? Oh, my God. He is just uh, he is just so unlucky is Christian Pache. I've been hearing that this guy, whoo, Martin Gallegos wrote about it. Our own Jessica Kleinschmidt has talked about it. Everybody's talking about how I uh, – do you know what his career war is for a guy that hits the ball so hard? It's a negative, I'm pretty sure. Negative 1.5. That's not good. No, he's – small sample size. With the, oh, uh, okay. Oh, 233 career bats. Okay. Let's do your buddy Sean Murphy. But, hey, he's in the 69th percentile of – Hits the ball hard. Rate. Hits the ball hard. Sean Murphy, he's hitting the ball really hard this year, right? That's what – I mean, even to talk about our good friends, and I know their job is to sell the broadcast, but Dallas Braden's going to tell you he's hitting the ball hard. He's unlucky. Uh, that's a 0.1 war. Yeah. Uh, let's, here, let's well, – is, is his – is the this – Murphy hits the ball so hard, is his war ever going to get up to what Rod Carew was at 80-what? Uh, no. Uh, no? But, hey, he's in the 95th percentile for max exit velocity. 95. He's hitting 202, but he hits the ball harder than it. That's It's a load of crap. You're selling me crap. Are you going to tell me now I get steak knives with it? How about that glue that can make it stick and everything works? Or, is, that, is that Gorilla Glue? Yeah, well, whatever. I mean, I'm doing it. What's the chamois towel? What else are you selling me next for 1999? <laughs> this is the worst sales job of all time. I don't give a crap what your exit velocity is. Hit the ball in play where the where the defenders aren't, and well, then I and then you know what? I won't have to bring up these numbers. Well, but is anybody wondering, like Ramon Laureano right now? Ramon Laureano and good on Ramon. Ramon now has a twelve game hitting streak. Did you know that that is the best hitting streak in baseball? I didn't. I remember you mentioning it the other day, but I but I think that was before either um, Trey Turner or Goldschmidt lost theirs. Goldschmidt still has his on base. base yeah, it's like 41 or 42 games, I think, for Goldschmidt. I'll tell you exactly. It's 44 games. Wow. You're really close. Uh, 44 straight games Paul Goldschmidt has got on base. But if I use Goldschmidt right now, that's an outlier, right? He's the best. What's the point of using the best against hundreds of guys? I don't understand that. Is that how you'd run your business? You want to compare the the law of averages. I would compare the guys that are similar, not not compare them to the best guy. That's, I mean, that's unfair. I, like, how would you be successful as a business if you just said, 
well, this is the greatest, and everybody should be compared to this. How would you make money doing it that way? Yeah, it, it's like that's like you being a company and comparing yourself to Google or Apple or Facebook. Like, this is where we need to be. It'd be like being in the restaurant business and say, you know what? This is our top seller, so we're only going to sell this. Well, what else are you going to have on the menu? Not everybody's going to order that. I don't know if that's a great analogy or not, but I'll stick with it. Ramon Laureano's got a 12-game hitting streak. During that time, he's hitting 367. He has raised his batting average 101 points from 169 to 268. Nowhere in this are we talking about his exit velocity and how hard he hits the ball. He's hit balls hard, no question. But you know what he's doing? He's hitting it where they ain't. And that, in the end, is what matters. You cannot have a career based on analytics that don't matter when it comes to winning games. You, you, you can sit here and tell me the exit velocity and how hard a guy hits a ball. By the way, is it, if his regular numbers are down, he won't be here long. How long can you go hitting 200 to 220, no matter what exit velocity, barrel rate, all this stuff, how long do you think you'll last in this league? You would think not long. I mean, Joey Gallo's almost out. They want him out in New York because they're tired of him striking out and hitting. Joey Gallo had a great weekend against the A's two years ago. Last year. Was it last year? Last year. And everybody was calling the A's clubhouse, show, we need to trade for him. And I'm like, no. The last thing the A's need is another strikeout guy, another low-contact guy. Does anybody remember that? If you are a fan of the A's clubhouse show, last year, that series, he wiped the floor with the A's, couldn't miss, played well on defense, and it was like, the A's need to trade for this guy. I said no. Yankees picked him up, and already they want to dump his ass. He's not a winning player. And some of these analytics are just to make excuses for why guys aren't playing well. You want to know what Ramon's expected batting average is? Oh, well, I know what. What is his batting average right now? Did you say it was 268? I think it's 268. His expected batting average, 264. If If you want to live off that, if you want to live off that. I mean, that's pretty similar to. to go ahead. Go ahead if you want to live off that. You know, it, it'd be like, it'd be like, hey, listen, I'll, 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 I love to take it to other sports, right? Because really the analytic people in baseball are usually just fan. Have you noticed, and this might be a wide speculation, gen- generalization, but really the hardcore analytic people are really just baseball fans. They're not yeah. really into the other sports. So that's why I like to bring up the sports in it because the average sports fan gets what I'm saying. It would be like a quarterback in the 80s who has a rocket arm and you would have all of these metrics on how, how fast the quarterback gets the football out, how far he can throw it, how fat the deep out is a big question. And, you know, when you go to the combine, can the guy throw the deep out? Can he throw the deep ball? You know, the, the wide receiver tree, can you throw all the passes and do all that? You'd have this guy that he – the metrics say this guy is hell on wheels. You want that guy or do you want Joe Montana? Montana. 
Montana doesn't have all that. He's a winner. Montana is not going to wow you as the biggest, fastest, best arm guy. How'd your Marcus Russell work out? I did. This is this is why I like to compare because I know we have a lot of 49er fans. Well, Trey Lance, who would say, "Oh yeah, Townsend, I get that." Like Steve Young. There's no way you're ever going to say. I mean, Steve Young, when he started his his career, it was like he was a runner. Sid Gilman with him in the USFL. Do you know who Sid Gilman is? No idea. Legendary football coach. He was uh, had his fame with the Chargers. Uh, brought Al Davis from USC to L.A. Chargers and then into San Diego. And then Sid Gilman was in the USFL and had Steve Young. He would t- He would not allow Steve Young to run. He's in the Hall of Fame. Yeah. He's one of the great football coaches. Yeah, college Hall of Fame. Uh, he would not allow Steve. He would tie Steve Young's feet together. <laughs> wow. He'd make Steve Young have to throw from the pocket. Steve Young had to learn how to throw the football. So then by the time he got his brains beat it in Tampa, Bill Walsh traded for him. Bill Walsh, the genius, went to where? San Jose State. Where is – he's not always in the shot. <gasps> I just broke Bill Walsh. Well – Get the glue. Go get him. Okay. God, Cody, that's your fault. Uh, Bill's everywhere. Is he really that broken? Yeah. I just broke Bill Walsh on this show live. Here, let me grab him for you. Oh, my God. Gorilla goo. And I really just messed up our, our, our set here. That bad? Is Bill that bad? Parts there. Leg here. Is it fixable? Move the tr- Move the table. Back. God, I love that. That's my Bill Walsh San Jose State bobblehead. Let me see. How is he? How is Bill? Oh, it's just the leg, the bottom, the head's fine. All right, so Bill Walsh, greatest football coach of all time. Taught Steve Young how how to become who he ended up becoming, a Hall of Famer, one of the most accurate quarterbacks of all time. But there's two examples, Montana and and Steve Young, you would not look at them as analytic darlings. You would not look because that's what we're, we're we're basically we got radar and we're basically how fast does the ball go? How you know when you hit it? How hard does it go? We got all this stuff that we can tell you. But the reality: Are you a winner? Are you a winner? Joe Montana would not be in an analytic-driven world would not be your number one quarterback. You know who would be? John Elway. Tom Brady no, wouldn't. I would say Brady wouldn't be. Tom Brady wouldn't. Tom Brady doesn't have the best arm. Peyton Manning wouldn't be. Peyton Manning doesn't have the best arm. So that's why I like to go to – I mean, Jesus, Steph Curry? Steph Curry would never even got a shot if you're going to worry about all these different analytics. He's not the highest jumper. He's not a great defender. I mean, really, what what does Curry do? He can shoot. But if you were just judging Steph Curry on analytics, Steph Curry wouldn't have made the floor because of his deficiencies. And we all look at that and go, God, that's just ridiculous. Well, look at how we talk about players. We're, We're like making up stats 
We're making up it's not even stats or analytics. They're, they're, they're measurements. We're making up measurements and trying to sell measurements. And then back in our day in, in, in analytics, we were making up math equations and trying to prove why a player is good or not or whatever. Anything, I the floor is yours. Is what I'm saying wrong? No, not at all. I feel like in other sports, like there are numbers that people are starting to use in basketball to to look at different things like gravity, how much gravity does he take out, like all that stuff. Fine. But it all comes down to how many three-pointers are they making because that's the big thing in basketball now. Baseball, it's, well, what's his exit below? How about his expected batting average? What's his expected slugging? How about his ex-woba? All that stuff. Ex-bacon. Like the casual fan has no idea what any of that stuff is. Well, it's expected. Yeah, and you're and you're looking you're looking at their stats and you're basing it and saying, okay, this guy's hitting two hundred, but let me make a case why he is actually a better player than that. And I get that. And I get why why we see that happen a lot in our, in this sport. But it also doesn't take away from the fact if the guy's hitting two hundred, he's a two hundred hitter. You are to quote the great Bill Parcells, I said this last night, the Hall of Famer, you are what your record says you are. When you have lost eight straight, 11 of 12, and your record is 20 and 38, that is who you are. Expected. What is the definition? Get me Eno Saris. Hey, Eno Saris, send this to him. Expected. Adjective. Regarded as likely anticipated. You're likely supposed to do this. I'm anticipating you're supposed to do this. Or the reality is this is what you've done. Do you want to see what the definition for expected batting average is? Would love to hear it. Expected batting average is a stat cast metric that measures the likelihood that a batted ball will become a hit. Each batted ball is assigned an XBA based on how often – Comparable balls in terms of exit velo, launch angle, and on certain types of batted balls, sprint speed have become hits since StatCast was implemented in Major League Baseball in 2015. Can I give you once again the definition expected, which is an adjective? You ready? Yeah. Regarded as likely and anticipated. Not an exact, not what's happening it's regarded as likely and anticipated. Here's an example they give. For example, a line drive to the outfield with an XBA of 700 is given that figure because balls with a similar exit velo and launch angle have become hit seven out of ten times. Great. So you're yeah, great. You're in the all right. You're you're in the part where well the three out of ten were outs. Uh, Big Murph is way more than the three out of ten is outs. No offense, love Big Murph, but it's just an example of you're you're trying to sell me something. You're trying to you're trying to sell me something that's not you know, and, and you the consumer right now. How you feeling about your gas prices? How you feeling about inflation? How you feeling about all of that? What if they told you, hey, I know. Your gas is costing you $110 to fill up. But the expected gas price is it's only going to be $95 next time. But yeah, I'm still paying $105. You keep telling me it's going to be $95, but I'm still paying $105 to fill my tank. Do you do you buy the expected gas prices or 
do you have to pay the actual gas prices? We pay the actual prices. Wait a minute. What about the expected gas prices? Those don't exist. The other day, I got two racks of baby back ribs. I'm not going to mention the place where I got them. It was uh, almost 60 bucks. I'm assuming that's a lot because I don't buy ribs. Why don't you buy ribs? You I don't. don't you, I don't have a barbecue to use to make them. But I've made you ribs, and you're like, I don't think you're a real barbecue. I don't. I don't really know what you like to eat. I'm just not a rib. I don't like. I mean, I like a lot of barbecue. I'm just not a bit into ribs. That's all. You don't eat seafood. Well, yeah, that's. I have a feeling you're not really into pork. I am. What? Well, what kind of pork do you want to know about? Bacon. Okay, that's. That's breakfast. Do you like pork chops? Uh, yes. Do you like pork tenderloin? Uh, yes. You don't like ribs? Not, not. It's, it's, for me, I, it's, I can take her, it's take her or leave it for me with ribs. Sometimes, I think I guess it goes on how they're cooked. I think I thought yours are fine. I just I was not used to eating ribs. My family didn't grow up making ribs. My dad wasn't. My dad wasn't really out of the box. What did I, you guys eat? You didn't eat seafood. Uh, no. Seafood's not big in Western PA. Seafood's big everywhere. If you take seafood out, that takes a big part out. So you're pretty much left with with steak, pork, and chicken. That's what we ate. I have a feeling you're more like a chicken with sometimes some beef. Uh, no, I'll do both. What do you eat on a regular basis? Uh, most of whatever my wife makes. Well, she's but- making what you want. Well, no, we do HelloFresh a lot. You're, so. you're, you're a finicky eater. Let's just be honest. You're like my kids. You could eat chicken tenders every day. Uh, no. Which is basically fried chicken. It is fried chicken, yes. Maybe chicken tender. No French fries, though. That's, yeah, but you could eat chicken. You're like, you're, you have the palate of like a 12-year-old. I'm okay with that. I mean, I'm just saying. As long as my children aren't like that, I'm, that's all that matters to well, me. Well, if you eat like that, unfortunately, you're, you you – your children. Are we calling Howard, or is he calling uh, H- us? Howard's going to join us, so we'll see him when he when he pops up. He's going to do it via video. Is he really? Yeah. We got him for about 15 minutes. I told him we'd go for about 15. So I don't have the book. I'm going to be honest with you. But the book is The Life and Legend of American Original. On Ricky. We'll have to talk about, because remember I told you Howard's going to share the story about Ricky and um, – him telling, uh, yelling, I was on second base when they were asking about who, where was everyone when Joe Carter hit the walk-off home run. So uh, I'm fascinated. The book just came out two days ago. It came out on the 7th. So I, I remember I, I texted him on Tuesday to see if he was available, and he said, yeah. So uh, I'm glad he was able to do it. Now I'm just He wrote a book on Hank Aaron, I believe, 12 years ago, I want to say. I never got a chance to check it out, but I know he did a book on Hank Aaron. Well, I, I thought uh, since we were just in Atlanta – it was really cool to see the uh, Hank Aaron, Hank Aaron um, statue. I got to interview Hank Aaron one time. So pretty cool, though. And it was it was like, you know, one of those wow moments in your career because you know you're talking to greatness. And I was really nervous. It was young in my career. It was back when I was on KMBR, and I was doing a weekend Giants. Uh, pregame show and taking on the Atlanta Braves and of course Hank worked for the Braves I reached out to the Braves and had him on and you know when you know you're gonna have Hank Aaron on you're just like wow and I had to been like I was probably like 27 years old 
Uh, Howard Bryant joins us. Howard, it's been a really long time since the last time I had you on. Uh, it was way back in the day when I was on KMBR in San Francisco, but it's great to have you back on the program. And we were just, before we get into Ricky, I know you've done the book on Hank Aaron, and we just played in Atlanta, and a lot of talk about Hank Aaron and his greatness and seeing the statue on TV, and I was just reminiscing about the one time I interviewed him, and it's just, it's kind of a wow moment because you know you're truly talking to greatness, and while you're talking to greatness, you also realize just the nicest guy for how great he was. I mean, he was just such a gentleman, and it was such an honor. And so so for, I, for me to be able to say – I interview Hank Aaron is really a cool thing. Yeah, Henry was tremendous. And as awesome as that was for for Henry to invite me into his home and to meet his family and to, to write about his life. It was staggering and a huge responsibility. And whenever I talk to journalism schools and talk to students, you always remind them that when you write about people, whether it's a 500-page article or I'm sorry, 500 word article or a 500 page book, you have their entire life in your hands. It's your responsibility to represent them properly and to represent them accurately. And when you're tasked with taking on someone like Hank Aaron, it's a staggering amount of responsibility in terms of making sure you get it right. Because when Henry and I first spoke, which was on Jackie Robinson's birthday in 2006, I believe, January 31st, 2006, Henry just punched me right in the face with it. He's like, I don't talk to media because you guys say you want to get it right and then you get it wrong and then you correct it and then I have to correct the correction and I just don't believe that you can tell my story accurately. And so that was how Henry and I first decided to get into doing this. And so to, to be able to take on these ideas, whether it's Henry or Ricky, huge amount of responsibility and you just hope that you get it right. You know, what is it like when you start going down the path? Because I'm sure you have ideas of why you want to get into it, whether you're talking about Ricky Henderson or any type of book or, as you mentioned, an article you've been writing for so long. You have an idea going in, but like anything else, as you're going down the highway, you go off onto, onto different off-ramps. What is that like when you start with an idea and it just good, bad, ugly, whatever, it grows and it changes in front of you? Well, the biggest thing that you have to do is to know what you're talking about. That's the first thing. You have to have an idea of what you want to say, how you want to say it. Do you have the access to say it? Do you have the opportunity to say it? What do you do when you're dealing with a subject that you really care about, but you may not have access to the subject? So those are the challenges of trying to get a project done. And then, of course, the other thing is, is that you cannot be dogmatic about it. You have to let the research take you wherever the research is going to take you no matter what you think you're going into the research in the writing is going to dictate what the project ends up ultimately being and in in ricky's case for me i was really interested in oakland it was it was really the idea that one this city is so underrepresented in terms of like the greatness of the players and then next, it was Ricky as a character. You start thinking about, you start putting him up against the best of the best of the best. And all of a sudden, you're like, there ain't a whole lot of guys around us. And now that lends itself to, here's somebody who's absolutely worthy of the full treatment. And there aren't as many as we think. 
the greatness of Ricky Henderson. I mean, you know, you try and tell kids, you know, because we're looking at all these analytics and everything. It's like, hey, the goal of this game is to score more runs than the other team. And that thing, home plate, touching home plate, is the number one goal to do it as many times as you possibly can. And for all of us who got to see his entire career, nobody touched home plate more than Ricky Henderson. You can talk about the stolen bases. You can talk about a lot of different things. But the number one thing, he did it more than anybody else. And I think a lot of people don't think about that. No, they don't. Nor do they think about the means to the end. They think about, they think about stealing bases as the goal. Stealing bases gets you 90 feet closer to home plate. That's the goal. And that's why Ricky, when people would call Ricky the greatest base stealer of all time, obviously he would accept that because he is. But there was a second piece to it, which is this is going to help me win games. This is just a means to an end. I'm the best at it, but it really is a means to the end. And the end is crossing home plate. What in this book did you do? That you went, wow, I had because you've known Ricky Anderson for a while. What did you investigate, find out that we can read in this book that you didn't know and probably none of us know? Well, I think there are three things that really jump out. One is the roots of Oakland. always known the Oakland story. We've always, you know, we know the Bill Russell, Frank Robinson story. We know that Frank Robinson and Beta Pinson and Kurt Flood all shared the same outfield at, at McClyman's. We all know those stories. But what we never really, what I never really saw anywhere else, and I thought was really important to dig into, was where those guys came from. And what I found fascinating was something that we never talk about in sports, which is the effect of the Great Migration on the city itself, on Oakland. There's a reason why Frank Robinson and, and Veda and Flood and Bill Russell all lived in West Oakland. And what was crazy about it was it was, this, it was segregation that black families weren't really allowed to live anywhere else in the city at that time in the early 40s. But the other piece of it, too, was all those guys came from the same place that you got Huey Newton, who is one of the co-founders of the Black Panthers. He grows up in Monroe, Louisiana, just a mile or so away from where Bill Russell grew up, and they end up being neighbors in West Oakland. Then the same thing happens with Frank Robinson and Bobby Seale and and Ricky and Lloyd Mosby. And before you know it, you go, this is unbelievable. That I didn't know that the that Paul Silas, that the Silases and the Pointers were related. So Paul Silas and the Pointer Sisters both lived over by McClyman's High. I mean, it's an incredible wow. amount of talent. It's a staggering amount of talent in a in a fifteen block radius. I had never heard that one before. There are 14 of them. The Silas Pointers all lived in the same house up off of Adeline in West Oakland. Wow. Wow. That is amazing. Yeah. So there was that. That was the one one thing I didn't know. And the other thing I didn't know, and I got it from talking to Mike Norris, was Mike Norris told me this was an amazing story. When Ricky and Mike Norris were in AA in Jersey City, they came back to their their house one day, uh, the apartment that they shared, and... Ricky was writing his future wife, Pam, writing her a letter, and he kept asking Mike Norris how to spell certain words. And it's when he realized that Mike saw that Ricky was really having trouble reading. And then that was where, um, you know, Mike concluded that Ricky maybe didn't read very well. And he says, but let me tell you how smart Ricky was. Ricky taught himself how to read in three weeks during the summer of 1978. 
I'd never heard that before. And he said that he was that he found out when Ricky was trying to write Pam a letter and and Mike just kept saying, well, Ricky, if you can't if you can't read all of these these stories, how do you know what people are saying about you? How do you know how you're being portrayed? And so he and Mike Norris sat there and read the newspaper for the entire summer when they were in double A. And I asked Ricky the story and Ricky said, yeah, we were such good athletes that they always pushed us through in school. And that we, whenever there was a game and we had a test, we always went to go play. And I said, sounds like today as well. Yes, very sad. Yes, very sad. But it also shows it you, also showed- you know, the success of Ricky Henderson was not all about just uh, how great an athlete he was because has done very well with his money. And as you just said, taught himself, helped educate himself. There's something special inside. There's a reason why. There's something special inside him. There's a reason why he was so successful, and it's just not because he ran fast. Ran fast. No, it was the, the, no. the desire to succeed, and that is the thing. I mean, and Ricky, Ricky's no, he's not dumb. I mean, Ricky knows his math. I mean, Ricky just had trouble reading. It was the English part of it. But that's why he's such a devastating, legendary card player. He knows how to count the cards. He's, math is very... Math comes very naturally to him, but the reading part didn't. But, you know, the way the way Mike said it and the way Pamela Henderson said it as well, when he puts his mind to something, you cannot beat him. And you're 100% right. That's not just about having athletic talent. That's having desire. The desire to succeed and overcome and defeat whatever the opponent is. And that was something fascinating. And I think the other thing that I learned doing this book as well, and I really, really appreciated it, was this storyline about history, about time and the arc of history, that Ricky was not a very popular player. He was not a very likable player. A lot of players couldn't stand him. They didn't like his swagger. They didn't like how, how good he was. They didn't like how he told you how good he was. But then over time, over the course of 25 years in the game, now they want to celebrate him. And it's fascinating how time works that way, how how Ricky is now the epitome of all the things we miss about the game, that the game doesn't have as much personality as it as it did back then, and that Ricky was ahead of his time, and that now he is this Satchel Paige and Yogi Berra combination of just an American treasure. And I just love that story arc, how over time we begin to appreciate when it's gone. And then you look back and you go, damn, he obliterated the record book. And so I just love the fact that over time you see how good he was. And as much as people talk about analytics and as much as people talk about oh, how analytics are ruining the game, the analytics guys were the ones who really, really went out of their way to, to, to resuscitate Ricky because the numbers showed he was even better than we thought he was looking at him with our two eyes. Yeah, I always mentioned here on this show, and I don't want to be known as an A's homer, but I, I always say, listen, there's Hall of Famers. I mean, I've been to the to the Hall of Fame quite a bit. I've been around this game for a long time. There's the great players, there's the Hall of Famers, and then there's that upper echelon of guys. And even and Dennis Eckersley's talk about it. There's those guys that are the, the Hall of the Hall of Famers, and rookies up there. But I, I'm glad what you just talked about, I want to throw this at you and get your opinion because this was – 
a very interesting conversation. We're in San Diego for the winter meetings right before COVID hits, right? It's 2019. We're like one of the only shows down there. It's like us and the Yes Network, and we're down there covering the winter meetings. Sandy Alderson at that point has not gotten back to the Mets. He's he's basically a, a special assistant to Billy Bean and the A's, and we just get to talking and we get on Ricky Henderson. We're talking about all the guys that he's moved, traded, and brought in. And he's talking about bringing Ricky Henderson back from the New York Yankees to add to this team that's been to the World Series. But can Ricky get them over the hump, which he would do. But in the room, they had a discussion. And there was, I guess, quite a few people in there. Some were for, some were against. Bringing Ricky Henderson back to the A's. Because of whatever you want to call it, I don't know. But I was kind of uncomfortable doing the interview. I'm like, and and Sandy was like, I don't think a lot of people. It was like one of those things where it just like came to Sandy, and Sandy's like, I don't think a lot of people know about this, or this has really been reported. But yeah, there were people in the room that said, "Don't bring Ricky back; he'll be back for the team." So here we're talking about one of the greatest players of all time in his prime. The A's at the time were like, should. Or shouldn't we bring him back? Would he be good? Of course they would, and it would help win the World Series in 1989. But back then there was doubt on whether he'd be good to bring him inside the clubhouse. What are your thoughts on that? I think it's 100% right. And I talked to Sandy about that very thing in, in spring training in Mesa a couple of years ago. And you're right. I mean, this is this is the thing when we talk about the arc of Ricky, that Ricky goes to New York in 1985 puts up enormous numbers, and yet they don't win. So what's the rap on Ricky in the mid-'80s? The rap on Ricky is that really big personality, really sort of aloof, not really a team player, puts up big numbers, but he's not a winner. Okay, they went to the ALCS in 81 in the strike year, but the, the, the knock on Ricky was that he was not a championship ball player. And we know guys like that. We've seen guys like that who put up big numbers but never win a thing. And it makes you wonder if they are championship-level players. So here's Ricky, and they're actually wondering if, if moving a couple of guys, if moving Eric Plunk or Greg Cattery is worth Ricky Henderson. What does that tell you about where – what does that tell you about where – Stan Javier, what, what does that say about his reputation yeah. as a ball player? And Ricky understood that. And when what I always say is that when you look at Ricky – you look at Ricky from 1989 to 1991. This is some of the greatest baseball that's ever been produced. Ricky had a chip on his shoulder to show the world that he was not just a great player, but he was a champion. He was a championship-level player and that you were a better player with him on your team. And it shows you sort of where he was at in his career that there was a question about having him on a team that was an inch away from being a championship team, especially coming from where they had come from, having lost to the Dodgers the way they lost. And one of my favorite things about that story is that, and Ricky told me this, is that the night Kirk Gibson hits the home run, and this begins the fall of the A's for that series, the A's are aware that they are short, that they need one more piece to get this engine going. That engine was at the ballpark. Ricky was there that night. Ricky was in the seats when Kirk Gibson hit the home run. He was the guest of Mike Davis, who actually walked 
to set up the home run that Gibson hit. And then Ricky, who's in the stadium, ends up being the final piece to the puzzle the very next year. Well, I got to tell you, I don't know how many people know this, but Ricky, you just think about Ricky in Oakland. Uh, So for years, I also worked for the Raiders. And I would actually, the fastest way for me to get up to do the postgame show from the field, I would run into Ricky Henderson in the Westside Club at Raider games. Here's like one of the greatest players of all time at the bar, Westside Club, Raider game, just hanging out with people. Like, Ricky was such a regular guy for such a star. He was always, even, even after his playing days, a regular guy. Yeah. I remember seeing Ricky one day at Sky Harbor in Phoenix, just on the escalator, heading out. I was like, well, there's Ricky. Ricky gave a little nod. I gave a little nod, and that was that. But 100%. And that was one of the things that I really loved about doing this book. And it, it was the fact that that there is a, a, a connection to Ricky and this town in Oakland that is unbreakable. And... It's not just that he's from here, there. It's not just that he played there. He is there. He really does embody what that city's all about. And that's not true of everybody being born in a given place. There's a certain connection that you have. And he's got it. And what I was thinking about as I was working on these chapters and trying to consider what was going to stay, what was going to go, how do you approach this, is that there really is an anchor to his professional and personal life. And it's that city. And what was really bothersome to me was that the the original subtitle of that of this book was Ricky Henderson and the Legend of Oakland. And the publisher didn't like Oakland in the title because they thought Oakland regionalized the book and didn't make it national, maybe made the book too small. So we had to change the subtitle. And a little secret to future writers out there, you may control every you may control everything in the book. But the publisher controls the title and the cover. You may lose that battle. I have lost that battle many times. And so to be able to tell these stories and to connect Ricky to Oakland, that Oakland is a place that gave him a certain level of grounding. And it was always better for him. Like, I I still, my first encounters with Ricky professionally was 1998, his last day in Oakland. It was my first year in the beat for the San Jose Mercury News. And what I found fascinating about Ricky is that when you watch great players, top shelf players, by the time they're 39, 40 years old, they're not the same. And Ricky wasn't the same. And everybody knew it. He hit, what, 236 that year. But he could still hurt you. And for somebody who was considered so selfish and for somebody who wasn't considered a team player, for somebody who got, got dogged all the time, there was a complete lack of ego with Ricky. Most great players, when they're not the same anymore, they quit because they can't handle the type of failure that the rest of us have to deal with, that all the other major league players have to deal with and that we have to deal with in life. But because they're so great, they're not used to that type of failure. And people on the A's that year just marveled at the fact that he was able to be so comfortable in his own skin when most players at that level just aren't used to failing that way. They're not used to losing, striking out, getting beat by guys who had no business beating them. And it just made people love Ricky even more because it said, you know what? He really does love this game and he loves competition, even if he's not on top. And then at the same time, 
there's going to be a moment at some point, whether he goes 0 for 12 or 1 for 20, where he's going to hurt you and become Ricky Henderson again and remind you that he's still the legend. And I just love that about this story. I just love that in, in, in not just the things that Ricky said, but in all of the people who played with him, whether it was Terry Steinbach or Eck or any of those guys, they just they had so many things to say about him. You could tell he was just a cut above, just a totally different legendary dude. The narrative on Ricky Henderson, as you mentioned, from Billy Martin's A's to the Yankees, then to the greatness of the A's in the late 80s, 90s, onto Toronto, all of that, really started to change as he got older. As you mentioned, we started to really realize how much he loved to play. When he's playing for the San Diego Surf Dogs, you're realizing, you're realizing that this guy that just this wants guy. to play. And it doesn't matter the stats. It doesn't matter the money. He's got every dime he's ever made. He's financially set for the rest of his life. Ricky loved to play baseball. And that's why we always have fun on this show talking about, you know, we, we've gone through it. Nine teams. Do you love Ricky Henderson, the Seattle Mariner, or the Red Sox, or the Angel, or the Padre, or the Dodger? That's the thing I think in the end once we get – because there was that time in the mid – I want to say late 80s, early 90s, we had the passing around, and Howard, we're showing how old we are, uh, where it's Will Clark's the highest-paid player. Now it's Jose Canseco. Then it's Ricky Henderson. Then it's Kirby Puckett. Everybody was – you know, that three, $4 million a year player. Every And everybody – Ricky always wanted to be the highest. As years went on, you started to realize it wasn't – a. Money was nice, and Ricky cared about money, and every professional athlete should care about it. But Ricky, in the end, just loved playing the game, and he proved that for how many teams he played and how for how he's playing in Long Beach, the San Diego Surf Dogs. Ricky proved to us how much he loved the game. Loved the game. No, that's right. And I just absolutely had so much appreciation for his willingness to put himself out there and play that I'm not going to make excuses for, you know, back in my day, you couldn't have gotten the ball by me. He wasn't like that. Put them on the field, and it's go time, and let's just play. And that takes an amazing amount of discipline. I remember talking to Art Howe about it, and Art was saying how everybody who steps in that batter's box, they know. They know when it gets past them. They know when it's time to say goodbye. And sometimes it's even easier to say goodbye when you're struggling because the game is telling you you can't do it anymore. And yet Ricky was still able at 39 years old to lead the league in stolen bases in 1998. At 39 years old, still had uh, <laughs> on base. It's incredible what this guy could do. It's, it's just, you just shake your head. I mean, the, the, the stat that gets me the most about Ricky is the Red Sox stat. He joins the Red Sox in 2002. From 1979 to 2001, Ricky stole more bases than the Red Sox. As a team, you can't, once again, I mean, this is the type of stuff you're never going to see again. 3,000 hits, 2,000 runs, 2,000 walks, 1,000-plus stolen bases. Forget it. I mean, this is as distant as 1,400 stolen bases is as distant as Cy Young's 511 wins. I'll give you one, and and you've been so gracious with your time, and trust me, we're going to promote the hell out of this book for you because I want everybody to read it, and he's the greatest player in our franchise's history. With the guys in Philadelphia, that was a different area, obviously, but there was great players. But this MLB stat pack, I'll never forget. I was reading it one day, and 
it says Derek Jeter, with one more stolen base, will become the all-time leader in Yankee stolen bases, and he'll be passing Ricky Henderson. And I was like, and I was like Ricky didn't play that long in New York. So you're saying all those years, all those Yankee greats, Ricky wasn't there that long, and it took Derek Jeter 20 years to break his record? That blew my mind. Well, and on top of that, Ricky had the, the all-time Yankee stolen base record. Ricky broke it three times in four years in New York. <laughs> it's it, And seriously, if you look at that record of the, the top Yankee stolen base, yeah. single-season stolen base guys, it's Derek Jeter who needed 20 years to break what Ricky did in four. Ricky, Ricky, and Ricky. Yeah, it's it, it's, 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 a, it's, it's amazing. amazing. Hey, it's been a long hey, time. It's always an honor. Uh, your work through all the different places you've been, uh, your work is as good as anybody's, and you're a great follow on Twitter. Uh, I hope you nothing hope for nothing but the best with this book. We'll do everything we can to try and get it into the hands of every single A's fan. Uh, we'll try and give some out here. We'll talk to you about that off. But uh, congratulations with the book and such a great career, and it's an honor to have you here on A's Cast Live. No, thank you. It's my it's my pleasure. As I said, I'm always close to Oakland. It was my first job in the business, and Mickey and Moose and Art and everybody. It's just, it's you know that book is as almost as autobiographical in some ways because it was the roots of me getting into the business. So nothing but respect for Oakland, for that town, for the team. Well, as you mentioned, well, San Jose mentioned- Mercury News. Uh, I've lived in San Jose since '91, so I was reading you back years ago in the Merc. Go in the Merc. Thank you. We'll be in touch. You we'll be, be well. In touch. You'll be well. Thank you. Take care. Howard Bryan. I Howard. can't wait to read it. Yeah, Ricky, Ricky, when you say age like a fine wine, um, it, it's it's a phenomenal point. Ricky is aging into this greatness and getting the respect that he didn't necessarily have during his prime. I would say Ricky Henderson in his prime was really known as a mercenary. And he wasn't the beloved A. Ricky Henderson wasn't bigger. I mean, if we went back, right? I don't know. Could we check this voting for the All-Star game? Uh, Let me see. I guarantee you Jose Canseco was getting more votes. Ricky Henderson, because remember, after after with the A's, he – the second time around, he then goes He goes to Toronto, wins the World Series. He, you know who he was kind of like? And I know it's not apples to apples, but he was kind of like David Cohn. I was literally – I thought that was what you were David Cohn was known as, go get David Cohn. You want to win the World Series? Go get David – Toronto got David Cohn. New York got David Cohn. Like, you want, a, you want a mercenary? You want a guy – you want a stone-cold killer on the mound, a guy that's nasty? Go get David Cohn. Ricky Henderson was like that. The A's traded back for Ricky Henderson to do one thing, to win the World Series. The Toronto Blue Jays traded for Ricky Henderson to win the World Series. Now, if you're not old enough to remember that, uh, that was a time. You know, because we have a – and I respect that because we have a lot of fans out there who listen to us that don't remember the 89 team. They don't remember 88-88. You weren't born or you were just born. You don't understand the greatness of that 89 team. But I'm telling you, the rock star then was not Ricky Anderson. It was Jose Canseco. Jose Canseco was a big deal. He was a star. 
I haven't talked much about this, but when they did that documentary on Jose Canseco and we had the viewing in Concord, I got to host it and I got to hang out with Jose Canseco. My generation, you know, Jose Canseco, you know, you're talking about the late 80s. That's when I'm in high school. That's my high school baseball years. That, those were my years of love and baseball and, you know, that lead into my college baseball. Jose Canseco was the dude. Jose Canseco was the number one star in baseball. He got the most votes for the All-Star game. Do you remember? I don't. I can't remember which All-Star game it was, but it was at Wrigley Field. Was this 89? Uh, I can check the year. 88 or 89. And that's when they didn't have the stands outside of Wrigley that they have now. People for the Home Run Derby were hanging out of windows. Hit it here, Jose. Jose was in Chicago. That would be the north side, not the south side, Cody. Uh, 89 was Anaheim. So Oh, that was the Bo Jackson, Wade Boggs. Boggs goes deep, then Bo Jackson. Might have been 88. Was it 88 or 90? Uh, let's see. Um, that was in a National League Park, so that's a good start. It was at Riverfront Stadium in 88. Try 90. Another MLB or National League Park. It was at Wrigley. All right. 1990, I knew my memory. At some point, my memory will go. But, yeah, Jose was the star. Hit it here, Jose. I mean, Jose's coming out of Madonna. Jose's coming out of Madonna's New York. He's got paparazzi following him. He's at Madonna's place in New York and Manhattan. No one was following Ricky. Jose Canseco was the star. But now... History is really on his side as we're starting to understand the greatness as we've named our field after him. Uh, hopefully, big vote this month, Howard Terminal. First statue's got to be Ricky Henderson, right? Uh, yes. I mean, I don't know who else you would. Well, well, there's you other could, guys. You but could do it to me. True. The Puts, townie statue. Uh, Am I getting a statue? Maybe it's the Chris Townsend broadcast booth? No. Well, if you're getting a statue, would you rather have a statue or the broadcast booth named after you? Well, the broadcast booth is going to be Bill King. For I know, but I'm just saying, I'm throwing, it's, a, it's a Jim Harbaugh hypothetical. Hypotheticals. Only control the controllables. Uh, what would I want? I just want a room. I want an ace cast Chris Townsend room. That's our our spot. I've seen this in a – you know who's got a cool one is um, – Petco Park's got a studio down the left field line. It's a TV slash radio studio. That's what I want. Fans can walk by, see you doing the show. It's pretty sweet. That's what I want. I want the Chris Townsend A's cast TV radio studio. The fans can come by and see us while we're doing the show. That's all I want. I don't want a bobblehead. You can keep your bobbleheads. I want the I want the A's cast studio. Well, I don't know if we want to give a bobblehead because we saw what happened to Bill Walsh. We will fix Bill Walsh, the genius. Um, God, I'm running behind. Howard was good. Can I get the Howard Bryant book, please? Uh, I'll text him and ask him if we can get a copy of it. Okay, coming up next, we are going to speak with one. I'm rolling. I'm feeling good. I, I coffee, is, coffee is kicked in. I'm ready to rock. But we got to pay the bills. Coming up next. One of the greatest relievers, one of the greatest pitchers, and a guy for sure. 
Who needs to get a statue when they build the new ballpark at Howard Terminal? That's the great Raleigh Fingers. Next, right here on A's Cast Live. The Coliseum has gone by many names, but none better than the Last Dive Bar. Hi, everyone. Ken Korak here, and my friends at Last Dive Bar are helping us celebrate our longtime home. Last Dive Bar has the most unique merchandise for all Oakland baseball fans. T-shirts, sweatshirts, the Ray Fossey line, and my personal favorite, the lights have taken full effect. Visit their website at lastdivebar.com or follow them on social media at Last Dive Bar. All proceeds are invested back into the A's Community Fund and their affiliated charities. Go to lastdivebar.com. That's Last Dive Bar. A's Cast Live continues from the town. Here's Chris Townsend. All right, I want a brief synopsis on what's going on in minor league baseball with the balls that they're putting tacky substances on. We've talked about this now for a couple of years. They're trying to get away from these guys having to use a foreign substance, spider tack, sunscreen with rosin, which is a joke, but should not be an issue. Oh, my God, you're putting copper tone on the ball? So in the minor leagues, they're experimenting with stickier baseballs. What's going on? Is it working, not working? What's going on? So they started doing this in double A. Double A leagues entered the second phase of an experiment being conducted by the commissioner's office. Substances from two vendors, the materials – Science behemoth Dow, formerly Dow Chemical, and a smaller company, Chocolates, are being tested in different portions of the season. With um, they're, So they're adding different supplements to the ball, like mud and all this stuff that are coming with it. So teams, well, they already put mud on Mississippi mud on the balls. Yeah, well, I guess now with saying with the regular mud of balls, teams apply the mud themselves before games, but that leaves a, um, it doesn't show you how much it's actually going to put on. So these two companies are both applying the tack before the balls are shipped to teams, removing the step from the process. Which Major League Baseball likes. If you want too to much information, is it working or not? What do we got? Uh, so far, and so far, the walk numbers in the Southern League, the rate has climbed from three point one or three point six last season to four point two entering Sunday. They're walking more guys yeah, with the, stickier yeah. balls. The walk rates up, yes. And what the very bottom of the article it says in there. Um, I, I wish we would have started this just not in the minor league, like, just not in Double A. Like you should go lower. But baseball doesn't want to start. What it. do the pitchers think? Uh, I, a lot of guys aren't a fan of it. Why? I think I think it's just because of the – this article was long, like super long. So I got through most of it reading the stuff about, like, the stats and how they're going up. It, it's, just, it's just one Are of Are pitchers things. claiming they're throwing less strikes because of the ball? No, I just don't think they like it. Why? I'd have to go back. I told you I read this article, but it was super long. I didn't read it six times. I just I, – I don't know what players like. I don't know. These kids, I don't know what they like. Like, they don't like the juice ball that's super slick. We know that. And they all complain. No seams, too slick. You know, it's like a cue ball. Can't grip it. All right, here's a ball with some grip. Oh, we don't like that either. Well, what the hell do you like? Do you like anything? Are you really going to get anybody that likes every pitcher's different, every pitcher feels the ball differently with finger pressure, how you utilize the seams? Are we going to be able to please anybody? Doesn't seem like it. Oh, God. All right. right. Both pitchers said that the tacked-up balls from from the the phase were inconsistent. Well, the non-tacky balls are inconsistent. Yeah. Can we just figure out the baseball? I don't – I mean – I don't hear anyone complain about footballs, basketballs. Well, the reason why the Celtics won game three last night is because they were playing with a different basketball than they were in game two. 
Yeah, I said it. So, Celtics won game two. No, they won game three. Oh, sorry, game three, yes. You're saying the Celtics were using a different ball last night. I don't know. Apparently they did have the, the, high, the hoop on the Warriors were shooting off for pregame was higher than it normally is. Celtics playing mind game. Was Belichick in charge? Jonathan, or, uh, uh, were they fit? Wait, wait, was there a camera on the on the side filming? What's Kraft? Robert Kraft was seen walking down the hall after the Celtics won the game. Spygate four. What would this be? They've got <laughs> caught. They did it with the they did it with the Rams and they did it with the, the Bengals. Super Bowl in the Bay. So be sweat. Yeah. <laughs> Spygate three in New England. Here we go. Those cheating sons of. No panic though with Dub Nation. It's not Draymond's fault. Don't panic. Steph's not hurt. Clay at some point will shoot again. Everything's fine. Yeah. Why would you panic? Steph's, Why are you panicking? Steph's supposed to play tomorrow. It's like already. panicking about the A's on base percentage. Why are you panicking? We're yeah. going to be fine. Say this, hey. A's, A's are 25th and on base percentage against left-handed pitchers. Uh, also, huh? it's still early in the series for the for the Dubs. They can still come back. Still early in the series for the A's. It's a four game set. Game one against the Indians. Would you say two before we get to Raleigh? Would you say game game four on tomorrow night is a must win for the Warriors before they head to away for it? A pivotal game five. Every single time I've ever said anything's a must win, people in whatever sport that is will tell me I'm an idiot. It's never a must win unless it's a okay. No, it's not a must win. According to these geniuses in these all these sports, the only must win is the game you have to win or you go home. Yeah, so game seven, if there's a, if it's three three. Yeah. That's a must win. But game five and, and by the way, win. most of these people aren't captain obvious either. You know, it's we're in the business of giving opinions, and when you give opinions, people are, oh you're an idiot. Well, I gotta give an opinion. That's what we're paid to do. So yeah, game four is a must five. You're down like that and you gotta come back. You're going to come back. Oh, it's back to the Chase Center. Well, okay. You want to be down? Because that closing game could be back at the, what do they call the, what do they call the Celtics place now? TD Garden. It's not the parquet. or It's not the Boston Garden. Yeah. Hey, the Warriors aren't playing games uh, five and seven at Oracle. They're playing at Chase Center. Maybe they should go back and play game seven at Oracle. Ooh. Close it out on a winning note. It's not the same. Chase Center's not the same as Oracle. Oracle. Until, well, until game until game one, the Warriors have never lost a playoff game at Chase Center. All righty. Oh, here. Let's do this real quick. Okay. So, June 17th, next Friday. That's, uh, what is that, eight days from now. You can show your pride and celebrate Glenn Burke Pride Night at the ballpark on June 17th as the A's take on the Royals. $5 from every ticket will be sold to benefit the Oakland LGBTQ Center, whose mission is dedicated to enhancing and sustaining the well-being of LGBTQ individuals, their families, and allies for providing educational, social, and health-related activities, programs, and services. Early arriving fans can get a commemorative Glenn Burke Pride hat, which Townie's holding right here, presented by Gilead as the A's take on the Royals. Tickets are available at athletics.com slash tickets. That's athletics.com slash tickets. That's next Friday against the Royals when the A's return home from this long road trip. Cleveland for four, Boston for three, then back home next Friday against Kansas City. I mean, the thing is, it's the underbrim that's that these hats that are unbelievable. I agree. Like, even with the uh, – the uh, AAPI hat that we showed the other day. Oh, you want that? 
I got that in my bag of tricks because yep. we showed it the other day. I haven't moved it. Yeah. The underbrim. <laughs> it's sweet. Yeah, it's a good-looking hat. Both of them are. Yeah. They're There's, well – I'm telling you, I can't say it enough. They're well-made. The AAPI hat presented by Cal State East Bay, the Glenbrook Pride Pride Night hat presented by Gilead next Friday, athletics.com slash tickets. Yeah, these hats – these are not like the hats that uh, we grew up with, giveaway day, you'd wear it once and they fall apart. All righty, I got to tell you, being around the 72 team was really cool this past weekend. I mean, obviously, you know, all the respect in the world – I would have loved to have covered them. I would have loved to have watched them. I, I joke with, uh, you know, as as Vida always says, I was the youngest guy on the team. And I joke with Vida, yeah, I was born that year. So uh, I wasn't keeping score. I didn't have the I didn't have the Bible. I didn't have the Bible keeping score for the 70s. But uh, obviously, what a great team. You can't tell the history of baseball without talking about this team. That's when you're truly greatness. If you take the timeline of the sport, plenty of players, plenty of good teams, but can you tell the history of baseball without talking about the 70s A's? The answer is no. There's only two franchises in the history of the game that have won at least three World Series in a row. A's are one of them. This is truly one of the great groups of players of all time. They're run from 71 to 75. They're three straight World Series, 72, 73, 74. They've written books about it. They're one of the greats. And this guy right here, Raleigh Fingers, who we're going to play for you, truly one of the great players. That's why he's in the Baseball Hall of Fame. And you can make a case. He's the greatest reliever of all time. Here is former MVP, Cy Young Award winner, three-time World Series champion, you name it, Raleigh Fingers. You know, earlier today, Raleigh, when we were doing the season ticket holder event, you know, I tried to bring it up, and, and, and I talk about this all the time on my talk show, about if you look at the numbers, your career is second to none. Truly, you can make an argument the greatest reliever of all time. But it all has to start somewhere, and really the greatness of your career, your Hall of Fame career, started with this group of guys in 1972 putting you on the map of that World Series. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, uh, that year, um, I made the ball club uh, as a uh, well, I made the ball club as a starter in '71, and then I really stunk the place up. And uh, Dick Williams was our manager in '71, and he took me out of the rotation and he threw me in the bullpen uh, about halfway through the season. And uh, I just kind of fell into the job. I mean, I think I had 17 saves from midseason on, and then in '72 I was strictly a closer. And um, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the idea of coming to the ballpark, maybe pitching that night. I couldn't handle being a starter and waiting four days to get knocked out in the second inning and then wait four days and get knocked out in the second inning again. So uh, I enjoyed the, the, uh, you know, the closer role. I enjoyed coming into pressure games. And I had halfway decent control so I could you know, throw the ball where I wanted to. So it was an easy fit for me. You know, a lot of guys struggle with the transition because as a starter, you get used to this routine about how you warm up and how you get ready compared to a guy in the bullpen. It's get up, get hot, and let's go. How was that transition for you from starter to reliever? Oh, it was pretty easy. I didn't need a whole lot of pitches to get warmed up. I kind of watched the game. If I saw, you know, the game's close, maybe a one- or two-run lead, and they were getting in close to the fifth inning, I just might get up on my own and just start – tossing the ball a little bit just to get the blood flowing and then I'd sit down and then if something happened then 
I get a phone call, then I would be up and ready to go within nine, ten pitches. So I could get uh, I could get warmed up and get into the game pretty quickly. You know, when you think back of this 1972 team, you know, you go on to win two more. You guys establish this just legendary run by the A's that makes you a dynasty. But how confident were you guys in 72 going up, not only winning the American League and then taking on the big red machine? Oh, golly. Uh, we were just happy to be there. And we had just uh, we had just lost Reggie in a sliding incident in uh, Detroit. And uh, we had lost Daryl Knowles. Uh, he broke his thumb, I think, on the last day of the season, fielding a ground ball. So we're going in without our left-handed closer and our power hitter, and we were supposed to get killed. So, uh, you know, I, I don't think I think there was more pressure on them than there was on us because we were supposed to lose. Uh, but we we had great pitching, and that's what we won on. We had, uh, I think, Catfish won 20 games. Holtzman, I think, won 20 games that year. Uh, Odom had a great year. Vita Blue. And, um, you know, we had, some, we had some solid guys in the bullpen with myself and Bob Locker and Dave Hamilton. Um, but I think we went into that series with eight pitchers. And uh, we uh, we outpitched them. Uh, they had a great they had a great offense, but our, our pitching staff handled especially the top three or four guys in their batting order: Rose, Morgan, Bench, and Perez. We kind of handcuffed them. They didn't get too many hits. Yeah, that's the thing that that I always look at when people talk about you know we got so into this. Uh, a closer comes in ninth inning. That's the only time he pitches. Team's got to be tied or mostly ahead. And I go, if you look at Raleigh Fingers' numbers, where you're throwing over a hundred innings in a season, you think of the volume that you pitch, the amount of innings. I mean, you could come in in the sixth or seventh inning, and you were taking this thing to the house. Oh yeah, there was there was usually nobody else after me. It was uh, you know it was me or the house or the castle, one of the two. <laughs> So uh, you know, I I would Dick would bring me in in the in the sixth seventh innings a lot. Uh, I went in '74. Alvin Dark brought me in in the fifth inning of the first game of the World Series, and uh, you know because he knew that I could I could throw four or five innings. So I didn't mind it. I enjoyed the work. Uh, I didn't like going out there a whole lot and just pitching one inning. I needed a lot of work to stay sharp. So for me, it was great for my control, being able to, to hit spots and. Uh, and more, the more pitch, more I pitched, the better I got. Well, of course, you'd go on, and whether it was with the Padres or the Brewers, and had you know phenomenal years. There's no question. But with with Oakland, did it take going to other organizations to realize just how crazy everything was with the Oakland A's? Oh yeah, when I left the A's, I went to San Diego, and uh, you know we were on a we were on a fourth place, fifth place team, and I said, wow. This is not the way the game is supposed to be played. <laughs> you know, we were struggling. I mean, we were struggling. We weren't winning ball games. We'd lose series. We'd lose seven, eight in a row. I said, man, this is this is not the way it's supposed to be. But uh, you know, you got to go somewhere. And I went to San Diego. I thought they were going to have a pretty good ball club. That's why I signed with them uh, when I became a free agent. I would. I think all of us would have loved to have stayed with the A's, but Charlie Finley just did not want to pay us. He didn't want to come up with the money. And he wasn't going to pay the uh, salaries that free agency was going to, to, to bring into the game. So he, uh, he got out of the game. And uh, I wish we could. That was the saddest day in my career. It was uh, the last game in 1976 because we all knew we were going different directions. The whole nucleus of that team was gone. Realistically, I mean, not everybody is always going to stay with a team. That's just a reality. But if you do keep the core and add to the core, 
How much more do you think you guys could have won? Well, we were all we were all basically right around 30 years of age. I mean, we were right in the middle of our career. Everybody, Reggie and Sal and Campanaris, Dick Green, Joe Rudy, Fosse. I mean, that was the nucleus of that ball club. And if we could have stayed together, we were just getting good. And I think we could have probably won maybe another two or three world championships if, if keeping Catfish, you know, and keeping Holzman. But Charlie just got rid of everybody. And if we would have stayed together, I think we could have done some some great things. By the way, is the mustache one of the greatest things you ever came up with? Oh, it was the stupidest and the greatest, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I was just being stupid. Uh, you know, we started growing mustaches in 72. And uh, no, everybody was just growing a, growing a regular mustache. I said, oh, what the heck, I'm going to do a handlebar. So I started doing a handlebar, and I started getting guys out. So when you get guys out and you got a handlebar mustache, you keep it. And then all of a sudden, bang, we're in the World Series. I got the handlebar mustache. Now everybody recognizes me. Then we go to 73, got the handlebar. 74, I got the handlebar. I can't cut this thing off. You know, it's my lucky charm. So uh, I've had it ever since. I never had it off. Well, I got to tell you, we'll end on this. Uh, during COVID, we basically started replaying the World Series games. And it was Ken Korak and Ray Fossey and I would do like a pregame show leading in. And it was one of the things that Ray really stressed with us is watch the volume that Raleigh pitches and the greatness that is Raleigh Fingers. And, you know, looking back... You know, we try to teach a lot of our young fans that, you know, you just didn't come in for the ninth inning for three outs. And, and the volume that, I, I mean, what, what what a guy would be like you would be worth today, someone who could be so good for so much. But just, just wanted you to know that it was really Ray Fossey that wanted all of our young fans to truly know what you meant to this organization. Well, you know, I loved Ray. He was a great catcher. It was a shame what happened uh, to him, but... I loved throwing to him from 73, 4, 5, and 6 I pitched to him. And uh, he, he knew he knew how to catch. He, uh, he knew hitters. He knew weaknesses. And uh, usually if he stuck fingers down, I threw him. If I shook him off, uh, he would come back with the same pitch. And I said, well, maybe he sees something that I don't. So I usually I usually stayed with what Ray called. But uh, he was a heck of a catcher. Hard, hard-nosed guy back there, too. He had a lot of injuries, but he always fought back. Well, it's great to have you on the program again. Enjoy the celebration with your guys because we're celebrating truly one of the greatest teams of all time. All right, well, thanks a lot. Enjoy it. Raleigh Fingers. The dumbest thing and the smartest thing, the mustache. (laughs) Who would have ever thought that growing a mustache would be a trademark and would make you money? I now obviously Char- Charlie Fenley was paying those guys to grow facial hair and mustaches, but it'd be your signature thing that you'd carry throughout the rest of your life, and he'll have that till the day he dies. I say, yeah, he still has it. I was there to see it. Um, I'm just happy you showed up and all the hard work you did on that day. 72 of the square, the uh, what was it? Hairs, hairs versus the squares. Hairs so. versus the squares. Yeah, um, that was a good World Series. Reds went on a nice little run after that. What do you remember from that World Series? Uh, Wasn't there a play where someone got taken out of second base? Your parents weren't even married at the time. My dad would have been like 12. No, 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 no. My dad would have been 11. That's what was cool that we, you know, with the season ticket holders, the people that did watch that team and had, like, the questions about it. I mean, it it was really cool. 
you know, hey, what about this game? And, you know, when the, in the ALCS are asking questions about, you know, against Detroit in the ALCS, I don't know. I was a baby. Yeah. Uh, I wasn't even a thought in my parents' mind yet. I wasn't even (laughs) one. I was a couple months. What? April, May, June, July, August, September, October. I would have been seven months old. (laughs) Seven months old during that. Seven months old I would have been during that. You don't remember Raleigh coming in, the pits multiple You're damn right. I was keeping score from my crib. I'm like Dave Feldman. I remember everything. Oh, yeah, I remember 73. I was one years old. I remember that. And then when I was two years old, oh, yeah, the 74 World Series, I really got angry. And then, well, do you remember the Big Red Machine in 75? Yeah, at four years old? No. Yeah, I was watching it. Then the next year, you know, that's after the Red Sox. The next year, that's when uh, Sparky Anderson goes into New York, and they're asking about the comparison between Johnny Bench and Thurman Munson. And Sparky Anderson goes, hey, no offense to Thurman Munson, but if you're comparing Thurman Munson to Johnny Bench, that's a joke. Pissed everybody off in New York. Go read about that. Sparky was just being honest. Like, you can't compare Thurman Munson to Johnny Bench. Are you kidding me? Got everybody angry. You can't. What does he say? Thurman Munson. And what did the Big Red Machine do? Swept the Yankees. Yeah. Yeah, see ya. <laughs> do, by the way, this, this is always good. Do you think Thurman Munson should be in the Hall of Fame? Uh, I would say right out of the gate, no. No offense. I mean, once again, I didn't watch a whole heck of a lot of Thurman Munson's career. What year did he die? 19. can't remember what year he died. Yeah, he died in 79. So, I mean, come on. I, I was... I was, what, seven years old? Um, 11 years. I mean, he was an MVP, but, I mean, I, I I look at the numbers and I go, why, do you? You think so? I do, but I'm letting you know that Tom Hamilton's here. Oh, Tom's here? Okay, sorry. I was looking. I'm looking at Thurman Mutt. Tom, how are you? It's great to see you again. It's been a while. Good to see you guys. How are all of you guys doing? Well, you know what? It is uh it's kind of just great to be back in business. It's good to see you knowing that uh we're getting back to more normal here as the Athletics going to be taking on the Cleveland Guardians and we saw you out west here, but now we're going to be there, but just just to to hear your voice and you know so a lot of our fans are able to watch the program now. It's just uh it's great we're getting back to a little bit if we can call it normalcy. Yeah, thanks. I, I I agree, Chris, because it. Uh, I guess this is our new normal, isn't it? I mean, <clears throat> we're going to deal with COVID uh, maybe from now until eternity. I know our ball club has. We've already had one game canceled because of a COVID outbreak that has to be made up. And I think we're going to see this uh, going forward. Teams are going to be hit off and on with COVID outbreaks, just like everybody else in our society. So, I think uh, you're just going to have to have the ability to fight through it, and and hopefully you don't have a lot of players out at the same time because it certainly could impact some pennant races if if we're talking about September in particular. I always like to tell people the last time that I was in Cleveland with the ball club, my man Ray Fossey right here, you see the sign. Ray was like, Townie, 
we got to go out to Heritage Park. So Ray and I walked all the way out there right by Bob Feller, and we went right to Ray's plaque, and it's right next to Dwayne yeah. Kuyper, who everybody knows here in the Bay Area. And we I did an interview with Ray for the pregame show from his plaque. He was so proud. Obviously one of the great Cleveland Indians. And when he was in Cleveland, I mean, when we got off the the bus, everybody was there with all the fans with Ray. They had no idea who our players were, but they know Ray Fossey. Ray Fossey signed all the autographs. Uh, Ray was a big deal in Cleveland. I got to think it's really odd for the athletics to be in Cleveland and know Ray Fossey. Well, it, it certainly is. And it was odd coming to the Bay Area when we did back in April. And, I mean, that's one of the things I most looked forward to was was visiting with Ray. We would talk usually a couple of times in the off season by phone. And, um, you know, that that's a big void uh, in everybody's life. But uh, I feel like one of the fortunate ones that got to know Ray and uh, call him a friend. And I, I think, you know, there's the thing, Chris, about Ray. I think everybody felt like they were his friend because Ray always made you feel like you were a big deal or a friend of his. And, and he's just one of the most welcoming people I'd ever met. Never bitter about what happened in his career, because let's face it. Um, and again, depending on how old you are, uh, I'm old enough to remember Ray playing. I mean, he was the American League's Johnny Bench. Yeah. And, you know, until that critical injury with Pete Rose in the All-Star game, and then talk about tough, uh, you play with a broken shoulder the second half of the year. Um, I mean, we, we've got guys on the the, the DL now with, with soreness of certain body parts. And and this guy played with a broken shoulder, yeah. and, and it obviously changed his career. But he still had a tremendous career, and, Obviously, was a key component on those World Series teams uh, in Oakland. But I think this was always a very special place for him. You know, he never would have been traded, I don't think, uh, had it not been for the injury. And, and you know, his career maybe not quite being the same offensively. But back in those days, it sounded like Cleveland uh, was trading anybody that was any good. They were in a perpetual rebuild. But I'm glad for Ray that he had such a great career. And I know how important Cleveland was to him, but I also know how important the Oakland A's uh, were to Ray. He, he was, he was really proud as a broadcaster and a player to be an Oakland A. Yeah. There's no doubt about his love for Cleveland. He would talk about the house that he had in Cleveland. He never wanted to sell it. I mean, Cleveland meant a lot to him because it's where he grew up as a young man and became Ray Fossey. And yep. I think about players that do love Cleveland. And one guy that we've had a lot on now, and we love Sandy Alomar Jr. Uh, yep. We had him on back on the when we were on the field in, in Oakland. I think Jose Ramirez now leading uh, yep. baseball in RBIs and re-signing there. He loves playing there. I mean, there's something about uh, – I think it's pretty cool that the players that love Cleveland end up sticking around and being a part of, of this great franchise. Yeah, I agree. I, I wish there were more of them. Um, you know, because we've had a lot of great ones that left here as free agents or were traded because they knew they wouldn't be able to get the, the top dollar. But I guess we, we could say that almost about every franchise yeah. now, with the exception of a handful. I mean, look, at the end of the day, if the Yankees or the Dodgers or Boston want you, they're going to pay way more than anybody else can afford. And 
And so the players have earned that right. But to your point, yeah, for Sandy Alomar, he's always said, even as a coach, it wouldn't mean the same for him to win a World Series with another organization as it would for him to win it here in Cleveland. And, you know, you mentioned it. I mean, Jose Ramirez, he left money on the table. Now, he's still handsomely paid. But again, (laughs) if he wanted to go out on the open market, you know, he gets more money. We know that. Um, But for him, it was all about a comfort level of playing here and a no-trade clause. And, you know, how many times now do we see guys go, okay, I've got a 10-year contract, but I want an out clause after two years if I change my mind, which is, to me, just bogus that anybody agrees to that. And all Jose wanted was the security and a no-trade clause. And so we're the lucky ones. We get to watch him for seven years. And I'll tell you what, he's having as good a year as anybody I can remember here in Cleveland, probably since Manny Ramirez when he had 165 RBIs in 1999. It was probably like your original contract with the Big Ten Network in case like SEC came after you or Pac-12 came after you or the Big 12. You had to have that protection with the Big Ten. Yeah, right. Um, But the only protection I have with the Big Ten is that uh, they got me a hotel room. So I was uh, happy to do Big Ten basketball for 25 years. Grew up watching it, loved it. And uh, I've been a very fortunate and very blessed guy to to have a major league baseball career and, and be lucky enough to do the Big Ten. Now, you talk about all these great players that that have come through Cleveland. I mean, it's truly amazing the amount of talent. Where does Jose Ramirez, when you start talking about Manny Ramirez or Jim Tomei mm-hmm. or Roberto Alomar, for guys, you look at that team that you guys had there that went to the World Series multiple times and just had so many tremendous players. You know, where when you look at it, I mean, there's been so many Indian greats, or should I just say now guardian greats. Where, where Where's Jose Ramirez in that conversation? Yeah, that that that's really a great question. And um, I think we have to see it play out. You know, I, I will say this, and, and I don't want it to sound like I'm denigrating Francisco Lindor. Jose Ramirez was a better player. Yeah. And the numbers would, would prove that. Now, Frankie was an incredible player when he was here. And he had that magnetic personality, that million-dollar smile, and much more uh, comfortable with the English language. And that's typical of somebody that grew up in Puerto Rico but then moved to this country when he was 12. So Francisco Lindor, um, I think, was much more comfortable as far as around the media and the limelight, and and rightfully so, got a lot of praise and notoriety for as good a player as he is. But quietly in the background, Jose Ramirez was putting up better numbers. And, you know, it continues to this day. But that's okay with Jose. He is still very good friends with Frankie. He's never wanted to be that guy that, uh, you know, the media is going to after every game. He's not interested in endorsements. He wants to play baseball, and that's why he stayed here. He's very comfortable in Cleveland. And he was saying, I've seen a lot of players leave and go to markets where they weren't comfortable, and it impacted their performance. I think what, what says it all about, Frank, uh, about uh, Jose, one of our hitting coaches says, Within two weeks after the season ends, whether it's the playoffs or the regular season, he's getting video 
from Jose Ramirez from his home in the Dominican, where he has his own elaborate batting cage, people to throw to him, pitching machines. That's within two weeks at the end of the season. He's already working on hitting for the next year. And so his work ethic is second to none. It's all about baseball with Jose Ramirez. And gosh, you know, and I don't want to start leaving people off, but my first year was 90. And I mean, if you're going to talk about best all-around players here in Cleveland, Jose Ramirez is on that Mount Rushmore um, because I don't think the other thing he gets enough credit for is one, he's one of the best and most intelligent base runners in the game. He's one of the most intelligent baseball people in the game, the way he observes everything. And he's a gold glove caliber third baseman. Now, unfortunately for him, there was a guy named Matt Chapman in Oakland. I was winning gold gloves and rightfully so. But Hosey is that kind of a, a defender at third base. And so when you talk about the whole package, man, um, it, it, like I say, he's he's one of the top four or five guys that I have seen in my 33 years here. And again, we've been we've been pretty blessed with Jim Tomey and Manny Ramirez. And, you know, I, I just thought Kenny Lofton was a game changer. Um, Grady Sizemore before injuries short-circuited his career. He was about as good a player as there was in the game. And we've had others, and I don't want to start leaving people out, but I, I don't know who you could put above Jose Ramirez. And now I think the biggest thing is he's got a chance to play his whole career here. We haven't had that with any of those other guys I mentioned. You know, filling out my scorebook and getting ready for today's game, I, I know that we've played a lot of games, and this is game 59 for us. I notice you guys have played, what, 52. So do you have, like, coming up, I got a bunch of doubleheaders. I know you've missed, as you mentioned, mentioned, as you mentioned missed a game because of COVID. Do you have a lot of double dips coming up? Because uh, I notice that you, you're a little bit behind us in games played. Well, we've only had nine cancellations. Oh. <laughs> So one was COVID, the other eight were weather, wow. and seven of the rainouts were here in Cleveland. We have had the worst spring, again, in my 33 years in Cleveland. There, there isn't anything close to it. And, you know, we got rained out Monday night, played a doubleheader on Tuesday. Last night, our game took two hours and seven minutes to play, but the rain delays were two hours and seven minutes, the exact same amount of time. We've played four doubleheaders. We have five more coming. And that doesn't say anything about the off days that have been taken away because you had a common off day. And so you played a game that had been postponed. So to your point, we're one game behind Minnesota in the loss column. And we're four games out of first because of, the uh, few amount of games, as you pointed out, that we have played. So uh, Tito wishes we had seven-inning doubleheaders because this is really taking a toll on your pitching staff. But it is what it is. The The fear here is that you have any more because you're just running out of places to play these kind of games. And it really does impact your ball club because a lot of times you're pitching people that probably shouldn't be here, but you had to bring somebody up. So with all that said, though, to kind of keep this on a positive note, 
26 and 26, just a little past the, uh, you know, the third of the season here. Yep. That's not that bad. I agree. You know, I, I really agree. And, and, um, you know, we've had injuries, but you know what? Everybody has injuries and I, it just can't keep using that as an excuse. That's part of the game. Uh, but I think the other thing that probably doesn't get talked about much, this is the fifth youngest team in baseball in the last 30 years. So it's an extremely young ball club that might get younger based on who they've got coming up in the minor leagues. So I think to your point, to be a 500 ball club going through all of this and be this young, I think bodes well for the ball club. They're not a believer here. And again, I'm not, and, and I don't want anybody to think I'm taking shots at Oakland or, you know, any other ball club that's done it a different way. That, that That's not my point. The point being here is they don't feel that they could afford to lose a fan base for five years by saying, we're going to tear it down to the studs. We're going to start over. We're going to get all these high draft picks and hope this thing comes together. They're trying to almost, I don't know if rebuild is the right word. Transition might be a better word where you're not going all kids and we'll see if it works out, you know, because what we have seen in the past usually is a tear down and, and it takes a while to get back. But, Last year was part of the the first year of the transition, and they were 80 and 82. And to your point, they're 500 this year, and they've got a chance to be a 500 ball club or a little bit better. We'll see. But uh, I I think it does bode pretty well for this year and for the future. Again, they're still missing some pieces. Uh, I'm not trying to be Pollyanna here, but uh, at least you've got relevant baseball. And in all honesty, our division this year is awful and there's no other way to put it. Um, Minnesota's in first place. I don't think they have enough pitching. I still think Chicago on paper is the best ball club, but um, gosh, they're like minus 50 minus 60 run differential, which yes, that's not good. And when we've played them, it kind of looks like they're bored and it's like, what have you ever won to be bored? You haven't won anything yet. So I, I just, I still keep waiting for Chicago to kind of kick it in gear. I think Detroit and Kansas City have been disappointing because, to my point, you tear it down. You, you There's no magic formula for when this will all come together when you do a complete teardown. And it takes a while for young kids to get comfortable. Yeah, it's great point on Chicago. Like, what are they? They're losing right now at home to the Dodgers 10 to 7, and they're under 500. There's been people who have speculated that if they stay where they are, they could be trading, not adding at the deadline. I'm thinking, wait a minute, Tony LaRussa, Jerry Reinsdorf, their ages. What's going on in Chicago? This this was supposed to be all in World Series or bust. That's why you brought Tony in. It just doesn't. It's it's not the recipe, the soup. It's just not working. It's just, it just seems odd. And you'll know better than us. You see him more than yeah, us. Yeah, I, I agree. And you know, sometimes it's hard to put your finger on it, isn't it? Yeah. Where you're like, why isn't this club better? But you know. Whoever it was, Dennis Green or whoever, your record is who you are. And um, 
you know, this is who they are right now. now I still think they can kick it. Well, I think where Chicago's really lucky is there's nobody else in the division that is a dominant team that could have run away from the pack and hidden. As well as Minnesota has played, and give credit to the Twins, they've had a heck of a bounce back year. I don't think anybody looks at them and goes, oh, can't catch them. Last year, you looked at the White Sox and you went, there's nobody else in this division that's going to catch them. They're, they're heads and shoulders above the rest of the division. And, and they won the division going away. They kind of puttered around in the second half. And it's almost the way they played the second half is the way they've played the first half this year. Almost like, you know what? And again, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking maybe out of turn because I'm not with them every day. But it's almost like, yeah, we'll turn it on. We'll, we'll turn it on. And um, I know they've had a lot of injuries. But as I just said, with our club and, and with everybody else, everybody has injuries. That's part of the game. Um, you know, we could have won a World Series in 2016 with Michael Brantley, Carlos Carrasco, Danny Salazar, and Trevor Bauer if they'd have been healthy. But you know what? Cubs got the parade, and, yeah. you know, we've got the excuses. So, you know, that's just kind of the way it is. And so um, I think this division is really up for grabs. Um, but I also don't think it's a, a division where whoever wins it is going to have a deep October run. I know you get to talk to Tito a lot, and obviously everywhere he goes, he's so beloved. He's one of the nicest men you'll ever meet in our game. How is he doing? How's his health? It's way better than it has been. As Tito said, hey, I can put two shoes on for the first time in two years. So uh, that's literally a step forward. But, um, you know, he's doing pretty darn good. And uh, it's just uh, – it's incredible to have him back in our dugout. I just think he creates a culture. Uh, I, you know, the guys like Bob Melvin, like Tito Francona, guys like that that win year in and year out where they don't have a 200 or a $300 million payroll, those are the guys that show you they can really manage. Those are the guys that make a difference in your dugout. And I know Tito is a mammoth fan of Mark Kotze. He thinks he's going to be a great manager. But I'm just saying, the, the guys like Tito, it's not an accident that we've been a relevant baseball team since he took over in 2013. He works well with the front office. We have a terrific front office. But I think it's old school and new school. You've got the analytics, but you've got the baseball guy that they've got to pay attention to and otherwise, why do you have Tito here? I, I think it's really a good checks and balances, and and it and it gives you the best of both worlds. And I think he's as good a manager as our game has ever seen. And you win two World Series in Boston and then get fired, and then you come to Cleveland and make them a winner every year and come, you know, within an out or two of, of winning a, a World Series. He's a Hall of Famer. Well, it's always great that uh, he's back in the dugout because he, he truly is he, he's, he's one of the great ones. Hey, it's always a pleasure to have you on, especially before a game. You're one of the legendary voices in our game. You make our program better. Thank you so much. Be well, and let's talk again later this season. I love to. It, uh, it was a treat to be with you. Love your show and keep up the great work. Thanks for having me. Take care, Tom. All right, take care. Tom Hamilton of the Cleveland Indians, one of the best. Swung on and belted. He's got great home run calls.
He does, and I, I he's going to be he's going to be he'll be a Ford C Frick Award winner. Yeah, I mean he's with the team since 1990, so yeah. that'd be 32 years. This would be his 32nd year. Uh, I, I've always enjoyed his home run calls. I've always enjoyed just his enthusiasm for the game. Like you can hear him in the press box when he's yelling home run calls on Oakland. Swung on and belted. <laughs> I mean, he's. I mean, he's been to the. I mean, he's. He's right. That in, that Indians team now Guardians, but the Indians back then, Ooh. they were so close to winning that World Series in 2016. Well, about 97. That year too. Is that yeah. still too early for you? Uh, no, that team was really good. Extra with, innings in the seventh game of the World Series with the uh, Edgar Renteria walk off, and they played the Braves in '95. Yeah, they. Uh, those those teams were so stacked. Uh, Philly. Your Phillies, you're 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 a Pennsylvania guy. Oh yeah, the Pirates lost to the to Detroit. I'm jumping off the ship. Uh, your Phillies are up six two in the top of the ninth inning to win seven in a row. Break up the fightings. Joe Girardi was the issue, huh? Joe Girardi gone. They're now win. We're winners again. Uh, what about the Angels? I thought I thought Joe Madden was the problem. They're not playing right now. I know, but uh, Dodgers about to beat the White Sox 10-7, and that's in the top of the ninth inning. White Sox will be 26-29. and 29. That's not good. How are things going for our buddy Tony La Russa? That's my friend. I, I, I should probably reach out and see how he's doing. <laughs> yeah, maybe you need to help him out. Yeah, they're – I mean, I just saw today Eloy Jimenez was supposed to be coming back soon. He just had to step back in his rehab process. Because of leg soreness, so he's going to be out longer. Tom Hamilton has said it best. They play like it's uh You know how, like, teams can coast through the season and it's all about the postseason. What have they won that they feel that they can, you know, ah, we're fine, we got the talent, we'll turn it on, we'll make it happen. We've done this before. Really win. Yeah. Uh, let's see, you lost in 2020 to the A's in the first round. Which was the COVID year, and everybody made the playoffs, it seemed like. Uh, last year, you lost in the first round again, I believe. I mean, what have they done to, like, have this, we got all this talent, we got all that, we'll, we'll just cruise. And here you are, Bomba Squad, Minnesota still leads the division. They're, they're five games up on the White Sox now, could potentially be six, and the Tribe, Excuse me, the Guardians are four games back. They've only played 52 games. This is game 53 for them. Yeah, that's uh, it's crazy. COVID-related, and, you know, as someone that's from the Midwest, uh, the weather there is awful. You remind me of the Midwest. Uh, it, it's, the weather there in April and May is awful. Uh, they, the saying, April showers bring May flowers, it, that statement is true in Pennsylvania and in, in uh, Ohio. Their weather always sucks. When you, I mean, when is it good? Well, in the summer, like the other, summer, it's hot and humid, and yeah. they got it was like that the other day. The here. midges or what are those bugs called that are all in the lights? They're not moths or midges or. I yeah. remember Jabba Chamberlain had them all over oh, in the playoff game. Uh, those aren't gnats. They're um. They're midges. Let's see. Let's see what they're called. I believe they're called. Put in midges and Jabba Chamberlain. I had never heard what they were, but I remember I was on the air when it was happening, and we looked it up. Yeah, yeah, midges. Midges. They're called midges if you're from the Midwest like I am. <laughs> yeah, I n- never heard that before. From the great state of Ohio, uh, yeah, they're all midges. There's bugs everywhere. It's humid. It's awful. 
That's the first time I heard Jabba Chamberlain's name mentioned in a long time. Oh God! Whenever I've been in, whenever I've been in the great state of Ohio, whether it's whether it's Columbus, whether it's Cleveland, or it's the Natty, as they like to call it in Cincinnati, the weather stinks. It's either freezing cold or it's humid and it's nasty. I've never been to Ohio when it's nice. I I, I do not believe, and I've been there in all different types of the year. Ohio, I could do without Ohio. You had to bring up job. You had to bring up the Yankees at some point today, didn't you? You always have to force in the Yankees. Wait a minute, he didn't always play with the Yankees. But it's, everyone remembers wasn't him he, as the Yankee. Wasn't he an Indian? Everyone remembers him as a Yankee, though. I bring up Jabba Chamberlain as a. He pitched for Brewer Detroit legend. Brewer Legend Jabba as a Tiger <laughs> la- Tiger Legend. Jabba. He was. I remember it was a Yankee. I think the the midgies. You know what? I think yeah. You know when I pull out my jerseys that I have of my favorite players, I pull out my Kansas City Royal <laughs> Java Chamberlain jersey. That's a that's a good one. I don't, even, I don't remember him playing for anyone besides the Yankees and in, in Detroit. I don't remember him being on Cleveland or Kansas City. Hey, Apparently, he just loved the NL, the AL Central. Hey, he's a World Series champion. Does he want to come back and play for the Twins so he can you know go for every team in that division? Uh. I do not want to go over the article because I think it's embarrassing. But where we are now after this is our 59th game, um, the Athletics, we've been outscored in our losing streak, 49 to 14. Eight straight losers of 11 of 12. We will have to have an all-star. That's, that is very true. And it, it, and it was at a point where you thought Danny Jimenez would be the easy pick, but that's not so much. Uh, they have an article today. On MLB.com, who would be our all-star? I looked at the article to see who it would be. I did not want to look at it because I wanted to say I didn't read that article because I think it's embarrassing. But I want you to read it, and I want to ask you. All right. I'm looking. I got I got, I got my book ready to go. I mean, who? Who, 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 who is going to represent? Where is it? It's Dodger Stadium, right? Yep. LA. Who's going to be in L.A. at Chavez Ravine representing the green and gold? Okay, so we're going to exclude – well, the article says Elvis will be the – should be the A's all-star. Elvis is going to be our all-star? Oh, wow. What was the title of the article again? It was – Everybody's got to have one? Well, it's going to be Frankie or Paul Blackburn, most likely, right? Uh, one guy on each team worth an all-star vote, and they had Elvis in there for the A's. I mean – can you imagine putting the numbers for Elvis? I mean, for Frankie up on the board at an All-Star game? We've lost his last, what, nine starts? Yes, eight or nine, yeah. I mean. Yeah. You want to put up uh, You want to put really? Elvis, 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 Elvis Andrews is hitting 240, which is a bounce back for him. Three homers, 11 RBI, three steals. He does have, what's that OPS plus say to you? A hundred. He's at league average. He's a hundo. It's a nice bounce back here for Elvis. Okay, today is the ninth of June. Correct. So we still got. When do they name? Because the all star oh, the all star game is a week later this year. Yeah, the start. So it's actually July instead of when they they you know the midsummer classic. They've really pushed it to midsummer. It's July nineteenth, right? Yeah, yes. Uh, the uh, the starters are announced on July eighth. So basically, you got a month. Yeah. Pack the ballot boxes. Do we still do that? Or is all online now? Uh, 
Talk about stuff in the ballot box. Yeah. Um, you want I to- voted online eight thousand times. Right? What? You want you want a couple stats for you? I'm gonna give you. I'm gonna give you. What about Ramon? I don't think he has enough games played yet. I don't care. He's got a month. That's what I'm saying. It's going to be Frankie. Or, he's or, got a month. What about if Ramon continues longest hitting streak in baseball at 12, gets a hit tonight, that makes it 13 for you math majors. If he keeps hitting and he gets his – I mean, his average is up to 268. We got to have somebody. Let's say he goes on and continues on this run. You got to have somebody, the one guy that has actually legit. Obviously, outfield's tough to get into the All Star game. But if you got to have one, and none of your pitchers deserve it, because right now no one's been throwing the ball well. And by the way, you're on the board today, Cap. Cap's 0 3 with a 6.06 ERA. A couple starts ago, remember he threw all fastballs to the Rangers? It took the one, it took going through the lineup and then to Seeger. The second time around for him to find throw a breaking ball, I don't know what he was trying to prove, but I'm telling you right now, Cap, Caprellian has got a six ERA. Not good. Not good. And none of that. I don't want. I don't care. You missed some time. Got right now. You got a six ERA. You got to start throwing the ball well. Yeah. Do you want? Let me let me give you. And uh, I still think it's gonna be Frank here. Blackburn is the all star. As of right now. You're going to have Frankie up there with a, a three-something ERA and they, he's having one any of his starts? Have to have an all-star. That's why I'm making a case for Ramon right now. I mean, I'd like to see a position player get in, but I just don't think it's going to be that. I think it's going to be a pitcher. It's easier for them, them to put a pitcher or relief pitcher I in. get it, but if you don't have anybody. I, if you're going to pick anyone from the lineup, yes, I would say Ramon if he stays hot. But I'm going to stick with Frankie or Blackburn. Give you a couple stats. But you're going right now. My point is we have a month. In a month now, if you've got X amount of home runs, his batting average is up close to 300. I mean, he'd be the easy choice. He's got a month to get those numbers even higher. Yes, he he does. And these pitchers got another month to see their numbers go down. Or vice versa for both. His numbers could stay the same and – or go down and that's not my argument. My argument is they're going to go down. He's going up. I'm getting Frankie to Chavez Ravine. Frankie or I don't know. I mean, I mean, I'm getting the Razor, <laughs> the Razor. I don't know what you have against Razor, the Laser. I, have I was about to say Razor Ramon, the bad guy. Uh, rest in peace, uh, uh, Hall of Famer. Yeah, let me give you a couple of these real quick. The A's have scored two runs or less in how many games this year? A lot. Twenty-eight. They've scored three runs or less in thirty-two games. Twenty-eight of the twenty-eight of, of the fifty-eight games. They've scored 58. two runs or less. I looked it up today. They're six and twenty-three versus teams five hundred or better. And twenty-eight of fifty-eight, two runs or less. Wow. And they're as of what the stat the website told me, MLB.com. The A's are six and twenty-three versus teams five hundred or better. Wow. So there you go. Positivity on the show. Yeah, they are. Way, hey, way to bring us down. Hey, they, they, you did have the stats with the left hand. They are much better versus left-handed starters. What does he do? Gets on base. That's all you care about, right? Do I care how he gets on base? You do not. Quoting Moneyball, the A's have the worst on-base percentage against righties at 267, but not against lefties. Why do you like him? Because he gets on base. Well, the A's are 25th. And on base percentage against left-handed pitchers. Aha! So you're saying there's a chance. We want to thank Howard Bryant, Raleigh Fingers, 
Tom Hamilton for all coming on Ace Cast Live. Coming up next is what? I was going to play some commercial spots because we only have a few minutes. So, And then we'll have A's Total Access brought to you by Chevron. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We'll have A's pregame coming up in just moments. The Coliseum has gone by many names, but none better than the Last Dive Bar. Hi, everyone. Ken Korak here, and my friends at Last Dive Bar are helping us celebrate our longtime home. Last Dive Bar has the most unique merchandise for all Oakland baseball fans. T-shirts, sweatshirts, the Ray Fossey line, and my personal favorite, the lights have taken full effect. Visit their website at lastdivebar.com or follow them on social media at Last Dive Bar. All proceeds are invested back into the A's Community Fund and their affiliated charities. Go to lastdivebar.com. That's Last Dive Bar. This has been a presentation of the Oakland Athletics.